We're in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I should have added to that list of those who helped dig us out. Daryl Tusher was here on the first blow-in, and appreciate that. This morning, we're going to turn back to Philippians and uh, begin back into that series that we were in. But before I go there and kind of bring us back to where we are at now, I just want to affirm, Stephanie, what you just sang this morning. Um, that kind of song is... Uh, is encouraging to my heart. I, I, I can't say that enough. Um, this week I got an email from one of you that actually I haven't responded to. I, you have to understand, I'm, I'm not very adverse on the keyboard, and so if you don't get a response back, it's not because I didn't get it. Sometimes I just didn't get back to getting it back to you. But the email was in the context of some of the things we've been talking about, about living in a broken world. And it, in, it encourages my heart that some of that is is getting planted in your hearts. Um, one of the things you do from Sunday to Sunday as a pastor, you share and you hope it's getting planted places. You hope it's taking root in hearts and lives. And I'm encouraged when I hear a song like that and I hear and from you by email or whatever other way you can communicate to me that it is taking root in your heart. And uh, that whole series that we had as we went through Advent in Romans chapter 8, I hope what you took out of that, and I said to my Sunday school class this morning, I hope you took out of that. I hope the soundbite of that particular series, and you can get it online if you want to listen to it, is that every ounce, every ounce of difficulty and suffering and hardship that comes into your life as a Christian, God is working to good. He is working out his good and faithful purposes in it. Every ounce of it. And I want to even go as far to say is even when it's created by your own sin. You see, sometimes we think, well, if we perform right, sure. But what if I blew it? What if I messed up and I created my own havoc? The beauty of Romans chapter 8 is that even that God takes and turns for good and his good purposes. What kind of promise would it be if everything works to good but there's an exception to that when we sin? My hope is that God can even take the times when I don't do what I should do as I should do it 
and turn that as well for his good purposes. That's the kind of God we have. That's the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, it says in Romans chapter 8. So I want to say that to encourage your heart this morning. Not to go on sinning. Not to go on failing. In fact, what it should do is cause us to live in repentance of that failure. To realize that even in that, though, God works. I believe that's what Scripture says. And I hope it's sinking hard and deep into your heart. Now we're going to turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2 and continue to walk through Philippians. This series is Christ Be Magnified, is what's on the wall and what continues to be there overarching this series in Philippians. And Paul's contention was, and his desire of his life, whether by life or by death Christ might be honored in my body, might be magnified in my body because Paul knew that as Christ is magnified, as he is seen for who he is, and again we've used that illustration, not, not magnified as a, as a microscope of taking something very small and trying to make it bigger so you can understand, but, but like a telescope, of, a telescope takes something that's very big and helps you to see how big it is. And so our lives are to be telescopes of where more and more people begin to see how great and glorious our God is by the way we live our lives. And I say to you, if you're a Christian today, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that idea has to be part of the paradigm in which you live. And I think part of growing in the Christian life is it becomes more and more of the paradigm in which you live. But if there is no desire in your life anywhere for Christ to be magnified, something is wrong. Because that is the natural outgrowth. When we experience something like the gospel of Christ and all that it means and all we've talked about, we want others to experience it. We want Christ to be magnified to others. When you experience something joyful, it's instinctive for you to turn to the person next to you and want them you them to join you in it. And not only do they get to experience the joy, but it doubles your own joy when you share it with somebody. And so there we have books in the foyer that are entitled For Your Joy. And I would encourage you to spread those all over if you've experienced that joy. Give out that joy to others. Let them experience it as well. And that's what Paul's life was. Whether by life or by death, I want Christ to be magnified because when people see him, they experience joy. And Paul's desire was that the Philippians would progress. This is, this is what he said. I think I'm going to stay. I don't think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to remain with you, Philippians, so that you may progress in the joy of your faith. For me as a pastor, I want you to be people who live out this Christian life with joy, not trite, flippant, flimsy joy, but deep-seated joy in your heart that strengthens your soul even when everything collapses around you. That you can sing as Stephanie sang and that you can really believe that every ounce of that collapsing experience, God will turn for good and good purposes in your life. So that's what we've talked about in Philippians. Now we turn to chapter 2. And Paul takes up the subject of unity in the church, of the, of the church being unified. And uh, 
Paul was speaking to the Philippians, as we've talked in the past, this is one of his prized churches. When he wrote to the Philippians, if he were going to list the churches that were dearest to his heart, Philippians would be right up at the top of that list. They didn't have a lot of visible ills. There weren't a lot of things that were going wrong in the Philippian church. It wasn't perfect because it was a broken world that that church was in, but it was one of the better functioning churches, one of the more healthy churches that Paul had founded. But even at that, they had some inherent dangers. If you turn over to chapter 4 and read verse 2, you read of a couple of women who apparently were having some difficulty in agreeing on some things. And Paul's admonition to them was, Yes, I ask you also, true companions, companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, they were having some trouble getting along. They were being... Uh, there were fractions between their relationships. And so even here, even in one of the prized churches that Paul had, there was disunity at some level. And so Paul writes to them here and he admonishes them to not let that um, divide them. And he, he does it in the context of the gospel. We'll come to that a little later this morning. But I want to say to you this morning that one of Satan's ploys in churches is to create disunity. He would love to have that happen. And I say to you this morning, one of the greatest joys of my years of ministry here at Richland is in these 30 years that I can take one hand and use less fingers than are on one hand of the times where I felt like there were issues that arose that could have created disunity or maybe did to some degree. But less than five I can think of. I can think of one early on when I first came. I hadn't been here very long and something arose and the fear in me rose up that that could... And it it didn't. Uh, We've had a couple of other occasions for that. But in those 30 years, God has preserved unity. We walked through this building campaign uh, in amazing ways and now are are well under $200,000 of debt on this million-dollar project. And we're continuing to whittle that away and, and really stay together in that. And I thank God for that. I thank Him every day for that. The fact He did not allow disunity. But we don't want to rest on our laurels. Certainly Satan would like to do anything he can to create disunity. He would like to divide. And he tries to divide the church. One of the things that I think is a positive for us here at Richland Many people would see this as a negative, and I think probably when I first came to Richland, I would have said, this is a negative. But one of the positives that I feel like God has given us is where we're located. If you take a polling of the people who are sitting here today, they would come from about 12 different communities, 12 or so communities, in now about a 50-mile radius. I used to say a 40, now it's almost 50, over 50-mile radius. We come from lots of different communities. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is that we're located where we're located. Now, sometimes you may not always be as grateful for that when you're driving here. But let me tell you the benefits of that. As I've lived in these small communities, and I include Aberdeen even in that category, although a bit different. In those kind of communities, you watch those communities. There are always issues that rise up. 
there's always something stirred up and something going on and somebody upset with somebody and some lines being drawn for some issue in a community. And, it's, and certainly when people are together, they have disagreements and that's why we have voting and all those kinds of things. But one of the things that has been wonderful in this setting is we don't get caught in those squabbles. The fact that we come from different places, we don't bring those things into this body as much as it would be if we're sitting in a community. I'm grateful for that. That's, that's a, that maybe looks like a small thing, but I think it's part of the strength that God has given us. Part of the strength is the cross-pollinization of communities, of people from different places coming together here. Um, part, of, part of what I believe is that the fact that you're willing to drive the distance as you come in, in some ways makes you not be small people. Uh, it, it causes you to think bigger and the willingness to sacrifice in that regard. And so some of those dynamics have helped us, I think, to not get caught in small, incidental kinds of issues that take away energy. As I thank God for the times, the, the limited number of times, what, what those times do, whenever some kind of disunity rises up or there's potential of disunity, what it does is it takes energy away from what the purpose ought to be. And that just has not happened. I've, I've spent very little energy in the 30 years I've had on squabbles that have kept me away from what we ought to be concerned about. And I'm grateful and I'm thankful for that. But again, we don't want to just take it for granted. And so here we want to look at the admonition of Scripture. How do we make sure that we continue to not let that happen? That we continue to stay together? Does that mean we agree on every point and everything that goes on? Does that mean we agree about everything that happens in our communities? No. It's just that we don't let those things divide. We don't let those things take away from the central issue of what we're about. And the basis of Paul's appeal for unity, the basis of that appeal to these people is interesting to me because it goes back to the gospel of Christ. Look with me in this passage. We're going to look at all of it. But he, he goes down as he walks through this passage and he says this in verse 5. First he's talked about unity and we're going to come back to that and what that unity looks like. But his appeal to keep unified and to have this picture of unity is based on verse 5 where it says this, Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The basis for Paul's appeal for unity was the gospel. Was the gospel of Christ. Just another way to to say it here and the way he talked about the humility of Christ, that he was in the form of God but didn't count that equality a thing to be grasped but left and entered into the brokenness. So we've talked about that at other occasions. But that, again, is the gospel. And Paul's appeal for unity is the gospel. So my point here just reaffirms what we've been saying for some time now, that we need to hear the gospel continually. How do we stay unified? By making sure that the gospel stays central. If we move the gospel out, we're going to be in trouble. But if we keep the gospel central, there's something about the gospel, 
death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and all that that means in taking care of our sin for all who hope in Christ, that as we focus on that, it has a unifying effect in our lives. And I want us to be gospel-driven people. I want us to be a gospel-driven church. We're going to come out with a new letterhead that's going to come to you, that's going to have that connotation central in it. We want to be known as a church that keeps the gospel central, that everything we do flows back and from the gospel of Christ. We talked about this morning in my Sunday school class about fear-driven faith. And I made the statement there that it, it, is, it is quicker sometimes to get results in many ways in people's lives in the, in the context of religious things to do it by fear. In fact, many, many of the cults, that's how they operate. And you say, how in the world can, can Mormonism, for example, how in the world can that flourish like it flourishes? Well, I think it's, it's done by a fear-driven motif. And so it's not that a fear-driven motif cannot produce things. It does. But long-term, it creates horrible things. And one of the things that a fear-driven motif will create is disunity. You might get it for a while. You might be able to coerce it for a while, but eventually the people rise up. It's just like these countries today in the, in the Internet age that these dictators can try to suppress, that Iran can try to suppress their people, but it's harder and harder because of the Internet. It's harder and harder because communication gets out. And eventually what rises up in these oppressed nations is people rising up. And it's the very same thing. If we use a fear-based motif to motivate people spiritually, if it's not a gospel-driven motif, eventually that will come back to bite us. Eventually, people will rebel against that and throw it off. So my desire is that we would do it the way the Scripture does, the way Paul does here. He, he admonishes the people to stay unified, but he admonishes them in the context of the gospel. And so we need to hear it. We need to surround ourselves with it. We need to be reminded of it continually because it has a unifying effect in our lives. Now, what I want to do this morning in that context, the motivation for it is the gospel, but what does it look like? What does it look like when a church is unified? What kind of things do you see when a church is unified around the gospel? And we read those here in the first part of chapter 2, and I want to take time to look at four of those this morning. Let me begin by reading in verse 1 and reading through verse 3, and we see those four things. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Those are the four things. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind mind. First of all, he says being of the same mind. What does it mean to be of the same mind? He talks about that in the context of understanding the mind of Christ and the humility of Christ. I think I think unity displays itself in humility. That whole idea of humility is incredibly important in the church. 
Now, we're not talking about a false humility. We're not talking about somebody who is is uh, proud of their humility. We've all run into that kind of humility where, where people appear to be humble, appear to have humility, but it is guised in pride. It is not humility. But what this is talking about is true humility. We began the service this morning that says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The definition of God's grace coming to us is humility. So beginning to understand Humility and beginning to live in it. Now, it isn't always totally, um, we're not always totally able to, to, to discern it in people's lives, but, but part of being in ministry for the number of years that I've been in, when you're working with people, you, you begin to look for some things. And one of the things that I begin to look for in somebody's life who maybe has made a profession of faith, who's begun this life of faith or makes profession of faith in Christ is, is this issue of humility. And to the degree to which you see it being produced in their life, the degree to which you see their gratitude level rising, the degree to which you see them broken by the mercy of God, you begin to, you begin to be encouraged to see that God truly is dwelling there. You see, you can't live out this Christian life. You can't, you can't understand it except it causes us to be overwhelmed with God's graciousness. It causes us to have a gratefulness for what God has done in our lives. And, and this whole idea where it says being of the same mind, when a church is unified, there is a, there's a striking sense of gratitude for God's grace in our lives. Again and again and again, you, you hear people talking in that context, talking about grateful for the mercy of God, grateful that God doesn't, doesn't uh, hold us accountable for our sin. And if a church is to be unified, it has to have humility. And a sign of humility is a, is a great sense of gratitude for what God has done. Now, you see how the gospel strengthens that? How does that gratitude get produced? As we, as we hear the gospel, as we see the gospel, as we see the glory of Christ, we see more of that. The, the degree to which we see it, humility is created. I was just talking to somebody this morning in my Sunday school class about that. And, you know, sometimes when we first come to Christ, maybe you can think in your own life, when you first were presented with the claims of Christ, Maybe, maybe there was a season of time when that came about in your life, or maybe it was just in a moment. For me, it was when I was 18 years old. God had been preparing my heart and drawing my heart, but I was 18 years old. I was in my high school auditorium. I went to a Youth for Christ concert, and in that concert, Christ was presented. And at the end of that, there was an invitation given for all who would like to trust Christ to be their Savior, to come forward, and they wanted to talk to us. For me, I can put it in that context of that was the night. That was the night that I, I really believe I passed from spiritual life or spiritual death to spiritual life. It was the night that I saw the glory of Christ, not fully, but I began to see it and I put my faith in Christ. Um, I've, I've told this story before, but I didn't even really understand that I'd become a Christian. It was the next night somebody called me, a friend who had been an acquaintance with me, and said, you became a Christian last night. I still remember him saying that, and I thought, that is what happened. 
I became a Christian. But, you know, in those early years, I talked a lot about trusting Christ and, and uh, receiving Christ and, and all of those kinds of things, which is what I did on that evening. Uh, but it was, a, it was a lot about me, of what I had done. I, I went forward and I, and I prayed a prayer and I asked Christ to come into my life and all that was true. But the longer that I've walked with God, the longer that I've been a Christian, the more I realize that even coming to the point of seeing that, God was orchestrating. He was moving. He was working. And He's the one who opened my eyes and opened my ears to see and hear the gospel. And so a sense of gratitude over the years has grown in my life. And I think that is what is paramount for us to keep unified, that we always have a sense that God came after me. He pursued me and he found me. Now, do we respond? Yes. Do we cast ourselves upon him? Yes. But while we were yet sinners, the scripture says Christ died for us. And we need to be overwhelmed with that in our lives. And as we're overwhelmed with that, I think it creates unity of the same mind, a humble spirit. The second thing that it says of the same love Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. The context of that particular statement is, is the whole idea of looking at the love of Christ. He, he says, have the mind of Christ, that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he left that perfect unity of the Trinity. Christ came and entered into the brokenness. He abandoned comfort for the sake of the loss, for our sake. And I think this whole idea when it talks about the same love that Christ had is a pursuing kind of love. Unity is produced in a church that has a pursuing love for people. Uh, We need to continually pursue people in loving ways. Part of it, that's certainly the body of Christ, fellow believers, Uh, But in order to do that, I'm convinced we have to get out of comfort zones. We have to step into their world. And I believe what creates unity in a church is if we're willing to risk that. We're willing to step into other people's lives and get involved in their lives and know them and care about them. And that's what it says here. And that's what produces uh, unity within a body. But it will take some things. It will take intentionality. We need to be a church that's intentional about moving into the lives of other people, about getting involved in the lives of other people, not just living in our own world. That's not the example we have. Christ left His world, His perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit and entered into the brokenness. And that's our example. With intentionality, He came. We need to move with intentionality into the lives of people. And you have people all around you And the degree to which we move with intentionality and step into the lives of other people, I think we continue to have unity within a church. So we continue to reach out. If we get get content with just a little circle that we're in, you get ingrown. And what happens when you get ingrown is you start to see everybody's faults around us. Um, if, if you don't grow, if you don't step out into a world in love, you will, you will pull in. And churches that pull in start to realize that everybody's not perfect because we aren't. 
But if, if your eyes are outward, if your focus is loving people and caring about people and they don't get inward, you don't, you don't see those faults. They don't become obsessive to us. The church is a group of broken people. It's a group of people who all have faults. We all do. But unity is produced as we don't focus on those, but we focus on reaching others. And so we need to have a love that gets us out into the lives of others. And, and I, I am going to, the next, in the next months, talk lots about this. It's so easy when you, you know, we, we were in the old sanctuary. We've been in this sanctuary for two or three years. It starts to get pretty well filled up on a Sunday morning through Christmas. We pretty much can fill this sanctuary. And it's easy to just kind of settle down and get content with that. But God needs to help us. We need to take risks for the sake of the gospel. We need to go out into our worlds and, and declare the magnificence of Christ. And I want us to be a church that loves our world and goes into our world and doesn't get comfortable. Because of the minute we get comfortable, the minute we get comfortable, disunity will rise up in our midst. You can be guaranteed that. The third thing that it says is that we're to have the same mind, the same love, and then to be in full accord. And what that whole idea of being full accord means, being one-souled. That is a wonderful thing that creates unity within a church. Um, The best illustration of being one-souled that I can think of is the story of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. You know the story of Jonathan and David? Um, David was, was the one who was going to be king, and Jonathan realized that he wasn't going to succeed his father Saul, but that David was. And yet Jonathan became a close friend to David. David should have been his rival. Jonathan should have been threatened by David, but he wasn't. Jonathan and David had a wonderful relationship together a one-souled kind of relationship and uh, when it talks about in this particular reference in the regards to unity being in one accord that's the kind of thing that creates unity within a church disunity gets created in a in a body in a group of people when you don't know each other when you really don't know each other on a soulish level if all you know each other, for the most part, of people in a church is on a kind of acquaintance kind of level, but you've never connected on a soulish level, you're more apt to not give people the benefit of the doubt. You're more apt to, to get miffed about something or upset about something. But when you come on a soulish level, when you connect at a soul-strengthening level, it changes things. Um, If you've never experienced that with someone, you need to ask God to give you that kind of a soulmate. Not not a spouse. I'm not talking about spouse in this regard. I'm talking about same gender. Don't don't cross genders in this except with your spouse. But beyond your spouse, you need to have somebody of your own gender that you have a Jonathan and David kind of relationship with. I think about it primarily with young people. I'm convinced that if you're a young person today and you want to live for Christ, you can do it. God will give you the grace to do it where you're living. And you can come against things. You can fight against the the things that would want to war against you in that. But I tell you, it's much easier if you get a Jonathan-David relationship. If you have one friend 
You don't need two, two or better, but one. If you have one friend as a young person in high school, one friend who you connect on a soul level, who you know that person would die for you and you would die for them, that you are connected in that level in the context of the gospel, you can come against anything. God gives strength. It it more than doubles your strength. It quadruples your strength. And so, young people, I say to you, if you have a desire to live for Christ, pray that God would give you a soulmate. Pray that God would give you a friend that would help you in that regard. And, And you would be that strengthened on a soulish level. And that's the kind of illustration that it means here, that the whole church needs to be that way. We need to connect on a soul level. My prayer when you come on Sunday mornings is certainly we come from lots of different places. We need to catch up on our lives and catch up on our kids and catch up on what's going on. And all of that stuff is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you ever do on Sunday morning, if you don't come and aren't strengthened in your soul in some dimension, in some way, you are missing what the church is about. The church is about that kind of strengthening of one another. And we need that. And that creates unity. And when you have that, when you have that, you can disagree about things with people. You can disagree on, on surface level things, but it doesn't separate your relationship because it's centered different. I pray God will help us. I pray that you have soul-strengthening friends. Um, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And that you're that kind of friend. That when people leave your presence, they are strengthened in their soul. They're strengthened by what you speak into their lives and how you care about them and how you love them. That kind of thing creates unity within the church. And then finally it says, being of one mind and having the same love, being in full accord. Excuse me, it says being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's a difference. It says, it says, first of all, being of the same mind, but that, then it says being of one mind. And the context and the connotation of that, if you look at it, is this, means to be intent on one purpose. We need to be intent on one purpose. And this brings us back really to what is the key to all of this happening, and that, again, is the gospel. Paul took the gospel and he said, have this mind among you so that unity can be produced. And, and here when he says being of the same or of one mind, he's talking about being intent on one purpose. The thing that keeps us unified and will continue to keep us unified is that intentness on one purpose. And my prayer is that that one purpose is that Christ would be magnified. If, if we can keep this whole series as an umbrella over our lives, unity will be the fruit of that. If the desire of your heart is that your life would magnify Christ, if that's the, if that's the desire of your life and then the desire of the person sitting next to you and the desire of the majority of the people within this fellowship, unity will be the fruit of that. One purpose God needs to help us. God needs to continue to help us. It doesn't matter where we're at as a church. The temptation is always that disunity can rise up. And disunity comes when we get away from these particular things 
in our lives, of, of having that love, that reaching out into people's lives, of having that soul connection, of having that one purpose. So my prayer is that, that God would help us to stay centered on the gospel. Matthew's going to come this morning and we're going to sing again that song that, that, uh, that centers that one purpose on Christ. All I have is Christ. I pray that's the central motif of our lives. Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be central, the gospel would be central, and that God might keep us unified together. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you'll help us as a body. For the sake of our communities, for the sake of, of people who don't see and hear this morning, I pray that we will stay unified and unified around the purpose of your Son being magnified in our lives. The power for that is really what we'll even sing now, Lord. That we see that all we have is Christ. He's our hope. He's our life. Lord, help us. Let's stand together and sing. I once was lost in darkest night. Yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would hold a rebel to your will, and if you Thank you.
just pray that our only boast would be Christ. And it is in the midst of that, Father, that we find the power to stay unified. Lord, I pray that the passion of our life would be Christ and for others to see that Christ. And for the sake of them seeing it more clearly, Lord, we pray you'll preserve unity within our body. Help us, Lord, to step into the lives of our world with that boast to affect our world, Father, in in good ways by magnifying Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.